0: Welcome back to the Econ Talk Book Club on the Theory of Moral Sentiments with our guide, Dan Klein. Dan, thanks again for uh, joining us. My pleasure. Uh, our last podcast, we were trying to get through parts three, four, and five. Uh, we got through part of part three. We might try to go a little faster today. We'll see. So our goal today is to finish up at least part three. Uh, we, we, I'm pretty confident we're going to do that. We hope to get to parts four and five, maybe into part six, but... As we learned last time, uh, the pace is not exactly under our control. It's a coordination problem between two partial spectators of each other trying to harmonize Dan and I, and uh, we'll see how it goes. Dan, over to you to start talking about Part 3, Chapter four. Is that correct?
1: That's correct. And I'm going to try to be more cursory than I have been. I'm getting uh, signals from Ross that we need to squeeze the hole into something like we what we originally planned and we're way behind on that plan. So, um, we'll do the best we can. In part four, he writes of uh, self-deceit and general rules. Self-deceit. Essentially, he says that... This
0: is, all, sorry, this is Part 3, Chapter 4.
1: Yes, I'm sorry. Yeah, go part ahead. 3, Chapter 4, uh, pages 156 or so.
0: And all page numbers that Dan gives are in the paperback
1: uh, the Liberty, Liberty Fund oh, edition, Liberty the most Fund. recent
0: one. Um, self-deceit is when
1: your immediate passions basically mislead your internal spectator, your man within the breast... Um, such that the man within the breast is now unaligned with the universalist impartial spectator, sort of the true impartial spectator. And so um, you maybe even, your man within your breast maybe even thinks well of what you're up to, but the man within the breast, as it were, has been deceived by the immediate self, if you will. And he goes from here into discussion of how. Thankfully, in society, we continually observe behaviors, take cues, and develop a sense of general rules of virtue of good conduct, um, um, ideas of propriety for all the different virtues in all the different contexts, and so we learn these general rules, and, he's, and therefore that's, a, that's an avenue for then, again, going to a more universalist, leading to a more universalist view of the impartial spectator, where these general rules can become more and more general in principle. And then a feeling for these general rules is our sense of duty, okay? So he finally arrives in this chapter in what is in actually the title of part three, A Sense of Duty, um for the first time in any prominent way, the sense of duty to these general rules, which we are sort of inferring from um, our observations of society in general. That, in a nutshell, is chapter four.
0: Yeah, I just just a couple of quick things I wanted to add on that. I think the, yeah, it, you know, he recognizes that his whole system he's been laying out beforehand has this little flaw, which is uh, we can fool ourselves. We've talked... Uh, on econ, talked before about pragmatism, uh, the the philosophical movement that, among other things, reminded people that uh, reason is maybe not as powerful as we hope it would be. And we have a temptation to uh, bias our reason with our own self-interest. And for the first time in the chapter, he actually calls, he talks about the ideal man within the breast, suggesting Mm -hmm. that The actual man within the breast may not be quite as disinterested and impartial as we would hope. And I just, this one quote I think worth reading, uh, just an observation about humanity says, this self-deceit, this fatal weakness of mankind is the source of half the disorders of human life. Mm -hmm. If we saw ourselves in the light in which others see us or in which they would see us if they knew all, a reformation would generally be unavoidable. We could not otherwise endure the sight. And he's basically suggesting, again, that if we were forced to look at ourselves through the eyes of the impartial spectator, the real one, uh, we would change our behavior. He has such a faith and belief and confidence in a person's desire to be approved by others and to be happy with how others view us, that he views that as a very powerful thing, obviously. And I guess in the last part of the chapter, he talks about how experience can at least partially temper this Mm -hmm. urge to to self-deceit. But I have nothing more to say about that, and I would like to move on to Chapter 5, which I found to be perhaps the most... As much as I like
1: okay. the earlier part, okay. this is just Let me let me amazing. again give a brief cursory overview. This is the one we're going to want to get into. It's got the invisible hand in it. Chapter five of part three uh, regards general rules, and they're being justly regarded as the laws of the deity. He first notes that religion inculcates the general rules of good conduct, um, but he also affirms that the general rules are properly regarded as the laws of the deity. Um, these. This is the uh, section, perhaps, where he makes some of his most theological um, assertions and declarations. Uh, meanwhile, this sense of duty, based on uh, the general rules inculcated by the deity, um, are to a great extent all that most human beings can actually um, use to guide their tolerable decency. He says, the coarse clay of humanity needs really to follow this sense of duty because their other pat- sentiments, you know, apart from a sense of duty, um, will be too much at variance with propriety uh, and, and virtue. Um, so he says that, you know, for the most part, people are doing what's proper out of a tolerable regard to a sense of duty, not because, like when someone expresses gratitude, says thanks and so on, they're more doing that out of a sense of duty than that they, they have this impulse of gratitude truly at the moment.
0: Right. That's a common theme, by the mm-hmm. way. It runs through a whole bunch of stuff. This this idea that our actual behavior is, is not necessarily motivated internally by uh, the desire for the outcome, but rather by the impression it makes on others. We had this discussion last time of the, the that the weak, what do you call it, the weak spark of benevolence. It's not so powerful. Yeah. So we don't help others because we're, we're have the, always because That's right. of this deep desire to see them help, but for a whole complex set of reasons. Yeah,
1: including our own sense of just propriety. Right. Yeah. Not only because it's instrumental, but also because... Just it's what's proper, and it's not really the benevolence. It's just what would be proper benevolence if I were feeling benevolent, sort of.
0: Yeah, and it's really, it's another example of his layering. Yeah. Right? You've got what you do, and you've got how people view it. You've got why you do it, and... how people perceive why you do it and it, it it all is going on at the same time yes and in this
1: chapter he's got a brief thing i want to remark on a tree in the forest if you will where he remarks on uh this sense of duty being the true glue of society um the most important uh duty okay and source of duty and he speaks of duty in in a significant way which um suggests that the rules this duty is um, motivating are, are, like, are then like laws. And the way he speaks of law in this way is a very anti-legal positivist approach because he's essentially saying, I count as laws um, duties that are enforced in this internal, sentimental, right, moral way. Social through social norms,
0: approval and disapproval, approbation and disapprobation. Yes, it's not
1: only what the cop is going to enforce. It's not only what you know is enforced by word, by government word in the in the books uh, of the government's law. It's a much broader sense of duty, and he includes it, I think, quite clearly. The only other remark on this chapter is that he seems to um, bring a lot of it home to those whom we live with. Okay, where if you're not keeping up duty. Um, first of all, your own internal um, self sense of self is likely to suffer. Again, he's he's sort of very confident that you know M- Woody Allen's wrong in the Crimes and Misdemeanors film that you're going to feel guilty uh, and be miserable if you do something dastardly, even if nobody finds out. But also that the people you live with are um, going to love you less, essentially, if you don't properly maintain a sense of duty. And, he, and, and this is one of several places where he brings things home to the people you live with as in some ways like the almost a, a, a kind of final um, um, bulwark, as it were, for, for good conduct.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, it's rather well, they're interesting. The, they're the cops, the non-governmental police that are closest and have the most information, right? Yeah. So, you know, a stranger who you interact with doesn't know your full story, but your family your neighbor knows a little bit more, your family knows a little bit more, and the cop knows the least because the cop has got his own incentives and is a stranger of a different kind even mm-hmm. than just a plain stranger so it's a it's a monitoring device a lot of mm-hmm. of what he's talking about in this chapter is about the ability of us to self monitor' so. not just self monitor monitoring ourselves but to monitor without as you say the power of the state right. Can, or do you have anything else to say about it? It's just that, like the the
1: monitoring of the, the, the goodness of the state actually depends on the fact that individuals are good monitors of themselves. Yeah. It's it's like a more of a bottom up theory. Go
0: ahead. Well, to me, this was this chapter was had one of the most stunning um, views of, of of Smith's worldview, and it really helped me think about how this book relates to other work of Smith like The Wealth of Nations and as to our role as economists today. So I want to I read a, a somewhat lengthy quote, Dan, and, sure. and give a reaction to it and then let you chime in. Um, he starts off with a really remarkable statement, um, a theological statement that, that has, uh, he's going to exploit. He says, the happiness of mankind as well as of all other rational creatures – not sure else he's including other than mankind and all rational creatures. I don't think he meant the dolphins, but he says the happiness of mankind, as well as of all other rational creatures, seems to have been the original purpose intended by the author of nature when he brought them into existence. Now, I think he's going to base that on his empirical view of the world; that it works out pretty well. So he he's saying that obviously, when when God designed the world, he must have had this in mind. And then he gets, I think. Uh, comes to a rather remarkable invisible hand metaphor. He's not going to use the phrase invisible hand. He's going to use that coming up soon. We're going to talk about that. But he has this similar style and language to when he talks about the invisible hand explicitly. He says, But by acting according to the dictates of our moral faculties, we necessarily pursue the most effectual means for promoting the happiness of mankind and may therefore be said in some sense to cooperate with the deity and to advance as far as in our power the plan of providence. So what he's saying there is that we're we're stuck with this impartial spectator in our breast or hanging over our shoulder, and that induces us to act in ways that make the world a better place and that that's sort of within the fabric of the universe, implanted there by God to get us to do the right thing and make the world more harmonious. Then he says... Then he ties it into the economics, and this is the part I want to make sure we talk about. He says, if we consider the general rules by which external prosperity and adversity are commonly distributed in this life, we shall find that notwithstanding the disorder in which all things appear to be in this world, yet even here, every virtue naturally meets with its proper reward and the recompense which is most fit to encourage and promote it. And this too so surely that it requires a very extraordinary concurrence of circumstances entirely to disappoint it. What is the reward most proper for encouraging industry, prudence, and circumspection, success in every sort of business? And is it possible that the, in the whole of life these virtues should fail of attaining it? Wealth and external honors are their proper recompense, and the recompense which they can seldom fail of acquiring – What reward is most proper for promoting the practice of truth, justice, and humanity, the confidence, the esteem, and love of those we live with? Humanity does not desire to be great, but to be beloved. It is not in being rich that truth and justice would rejoice, but in being trusted and believed, recompenses which those virtues must almost always acquire. So he's making the extraordinary claim here to me, is why I'm reading this passage, Mm -hmm. that the world has been... Whether it's been created or just happens to be, it has these built-in incentives that align our behavior in classic economic senses, uh, incentives that create the, uh, the production of virtue and prosperity. And he, he argues, of course, they're set in motion by God. And the, uh, So you've got industry, prudence, and circumspection. Those things lead to business success. He can he admits it doesn't always, but over a lifetime, if you're industrious, prudent, and circumspect, you're going to prosper. And if you're in honesty and moral behavior, r- the return to that is honor and respect from one's fellows. Now, he says Th- those you live with, whether that means your family, your circle of friends, uh, it's not clear to me. But it's clear here that in both the economic sphere, what we would call the business world or the the economy at large, and then the... The less visible the, the the connections between us as 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 social beings interacting with each other, we're induced to do the right thing by either the return a financial return or by a return of being loved by those we treat well, and that's to me a rather extraordinary um, parallel of those two sort of worlds: the external mm-hmm. world of of commerce that that we've touched on in yep. our first podcast, and you, and then this less visible, it's still the external world, but this less visible, less tangible world of our moral actions and that somehow in both cases we're induced without the power of, of the policeman, without the, the legislation of the state, we're induced through natural incentives that are built into our conscience and, and the economic fabric to do things that improve a lot of humanity. And that's the way I read that. I found that to be a rather extraordinary passage.
1: Yes, it is. And... Um James Otteson's 2002 book on Smith, Adam Smith's Marketplace of Life, uh, picks up on exactly this. He's saying that Adam Smith is declaring, um, developing an invisible hand of morals very parallel to a theory, an invisible hand theory in economics in the market. Um, so, you know, uh, there's a great deal of parallel and I think that's I think that's correct I think Adam Smith's totally affirming these invisible hand mechanisms in both realms um, and you know how exactly they interact or if they're distinct and so on are interesting questions I think I think probably you would want to make them distinct to some extent but well what's um,
0: interesting is that in in Hayek or in the classroom when we're talking about the harmony that comes say in supply and demand as prices adjust yeah um, there 's this price mechanism that 's inducing right. this harmony, and what smith 's talking about here the only step he really takes toward that is 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 prosperity that if if you, uh, if you work hard and you 're prudent, you make wise business decisions there 's a, a a return that 's commensurate most of the time, not always he admits, but most of the time the harder you work, the more you get. The more prudent you are, the more you get. So there is a natural uh, return that's commensurate with the amount. That's the closest you'd get to to saying there's some sort of equilibrating mechanism in this passage, akin to say prices adjusting that we talk about in a, a microeconomics class. But in the moral sphere, uh, it's not as it's not as obvious. True, you get more praise and more honor, but there's clearly nothing like a price. That's right. It, there's an implicit what, what Becker would call a shadow price um, for some of these. There's no medium of exchange. There's no medium of exchange. There's no property rights. You can't sell your. Well, you can in a certain way. You can you can sell your honesty if if you want. But but it's a little. It's not analogous to the harmony that takes place in a market setting where buyers and sellers uh, come together and, and find uh, their need, their wants, and 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 efforts in aligned in an order. So it's like a whole another yeah. level up. But but here he's simply talking about the fact that there's an incentive to be prudent, an incentive to be honorable and honest, um, and we'll talk about it more because he's going to come back explicitly in a, in another chapter and talk about it.
1: Yeah, I mean at some point we should just say that, um, you know, Smith's basic explanation is that God created it this way. I mean, even for the economics, in a sense, he's sort of God created everything, set up everything um, to work out. This way,
0: and he essentially says God did it as best as he could have. Um, He's always finding a silver lining. If he finds something yeah. in, in the hum, human nature that he finds unattractive, he'll then say, "But, but there's more. You know, there's yep. there, there's still something good about that, that. There's a reason God put it there in us." Yes. Um, and
1: naturally, um, an alternative point of view is to say that all of this is evolutionarily. Developed, including our own sense of good and working out and and social utility. Um, And there's a huge debate in the Smith literature about how serious Smith was about the the providential source of all this. Um, And it matters in some respects, but we probably shouldn't try to delve into it.
0: It's fascinating. Yeah. That's a... I'm, I'm not so worried about what Smith really meant. It, this is what he at least thought was useful for people to think about. Um, Hayek, in the beginning of The Fatal Conceit, clearly talks about how these norms and um, incentives could emerge evolutionarily as cultures that had the better incentives thrived, and those that didn't yeah. would struggle. So, it's clearly, there, there can be more than one mechanism, obviously, right. to, to and there get there are a from. couple of, as, as we've noted, a
1: couple of evolutionary hints in this book.
0: Yeah, and he's definitely got, there's, a, I, there's some coming up uh, in, in, in part six, which yeah. we, I'm sure we'll talk about. The
1: only other thing on what you say is that um, all this suggests that there's a correspondence between the impartial spectator and the being whose hand is invisible.
0: Yeah, it's fascinating to me that he doesn't argue that God is watching us, and that's why we behave well. Either Indirectly, of, though, he kind of does. It, kind it, it, of, it's that way. either out of a, in the positive sense rather than a normative sense he, he, or a theological sense, he's, he's he could have said the reason people do the right thing is they're afraid they're going to be punished and go to hell. He doesn't say that, either because he knows that most people don't feel that intensely enough or most people don't feel it at all. You, you know, so he does not invoke that argument for good behavior, although he occasionally talks about religious people mm-hmm. Uh, but he 's just talking about monks, <laughs> it seems to me people who 've adopted a an explicitly religious life uh in in the Britain of his day uh, uh, fundamentalism wasn 't particularly common it was i assume it was mainly among the monks and and others the the uh, preachers and, and ministers but his uh he 's got a, to me another layer he 's got the man within the breast in his vision is Divinely implanted there, but the man within the breast is not. It's a man within the breast. It's you being aware of how others view you, not God standing over you judging you. And he explicitly does not say that as the main motivator of human decency. Yeah. Should we go on to chapter six? Yeah. I just want before we do, I want to read one quote which which I know you love, uh, even though we haven't talked about it explicitly. (laughs) And I think. I made reference to it last time, but I think before we leave chapter five, it it bears mentioning. He says, The natural course of things cannot be entirely controlled by the impotent endeavors of man. The current is too rapid and too strong for him to stop it. And though the rules which direct it appear to have been established for the wisest and best purposes, they sometimes produce effects which shock all his natural sentiments. So that's Smith talking about the law of unintended consequences – the, the difficulty of overturning market forces um, and mm-hmm. how political solutions, well-motivated, are often going to be overturned. Even though they may be very well intended, they're often going to be overwhelmed by the reality of human.
1: Okay, that would be one interpretation. So, is when, there another?
0: Oh, uh, I don't know. <laughs> I mean,
1: I'm not sure he's narrowing, confining what, you just read to, you know, what happens in the free market.
0: Absolutely. It right. could be, you know, what
1: happens in politics also. What and happens so, in your
0: parenting or your buddies or your business. or Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah His w- invisible hand is a lot broader than the Hayekian invisible hand. It's sort of everything. Morals, culture, history, political institutions. I mean, you can look at the how it works in s- the wealth of nations within the more Hayekian economic context, but... That is still a, a, just sort of a part of a broader Smithian
0: notion of invisible hand uh, absolutely, I totally agree um, let's move on to chapter six, so we are now in part three, chapter six. okay, so here Some he's good stuff in here for for you Dan
1: okay he's addressing um, whether it, it we should confine our motives, whether it's proper to confine our motives just to this sense of duty that is duty to. Propriety in the various virtues. Okay, and, um, rather than actually allowing sort of genuine, spontaneous sentiment to supplement or override that sense of duty, um, is it okay to allow other sentiments into our motives? Um, he says it depends, um, first of all, on the natural agreeableness or disagreeableness of the passions uh, we're considering here. For social passions, um, you know, friendship, kindness, appreciation, gratitude, uh, he thinks it's nice that the genuine impulse also supplements the sense of duty, basically. But for the unsocial passions, um, indignation, uh, hatred, and so on, he basically says, no, you should just do those as much as the sense of duty permits you. You should be restrained by the sense of duty, and you shouldn't let the passions itself. There shouldn't be wrath. Wrath is like the excess, like the passionate resentment or indignation.
0: And and I assume he's – I don't remember now, but but he's saying that because of the way we judge people who are wrathful, right? The person who has a reason to be wrathful but is only uh, angry, we respect because they've they've restrained it. And on the other hand – and he's always doing this sort of parallel, too much, too little. Somebody who's yeah. mistreated but just turns the other cheek, uh, he's, he's critical of. He, he said, more accurately, we're critical of that person. So, again, it's this, this very Aristotelian. Yeah. Um, and it
1: makes us sympathetic to the person he's wrathful to.
0: Correct. Because that person right. is very, now being sort of unfairly <laughs> Overly critical. Condemnated, yeah. Yeah. Con, uh, condemned. condemned. Yeah. Condemned. Um, yeah. But it's this sort of Aristotelian moderation to this Greek idea of Moderation mm-hmm. between the, the extremes, which he doesn 't explicitly say, but it's definitely definitely in there um,
1: and then he says that whether these other things play a role that is things other than the sense of duty, also depends on the looseness and inaccuracy of the general rules, which you know are the sense of duty is based on and basically he's saying that you know there are many exceptions many gray areas and you necessarily resort or fall back on sentiments other than the general rules that make for duty Um, and so and you kind of have to cut people slack when the general rules are so vague that you know they're naturally sort of flying by the seat of their pants somewhat um in 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 their conduct Um, the only one that doesn't have these – clearly doesn't have these gray areas and uh, and exceptions, at least among neighbors, is um, justice, okay, by which, of course, he means here commutative justice. That is exact and grammatical. Here at page 175, he um,
0: – Yeah, but remind listeners who maybe listened to part – Our first podcast a long time ago, this analogy between, you said grammatical, between language, grammar versus style, and precise versus loose, vague, and indeterminate.
1: Yeah, he talks about two different kinds of rules. One kind are um, exact and precise and indispensable, Um, and uh, those kinds of rules in writing have their analog in grammar, and in um, ethics, in justice, in commutative justice. Okay, you don't break grammar, and you don't mess with other people's stuff. And that's that's rather exact. Messing is pretty clearly defi- defined. Other people's stuff is pretty clearly defined, just as sentence, you know, grammar is pretty clearly defined. And that clarity is quite different than for the other kind of rules, uh, which are loose, vague, and indeterminate. And there, in writing, that is the kind of rules that critics lay down for what is sublime or elegant in writing. Okay, so it's sort of more like aspirational rules, um, and they're vague. Um, and in ethics, it's all the becoming virtues, basically everything except for justice. That we've talked about, including even
0: prudence, because it's hard to know. As we've talked about in passing, it's hard to know what's prudent. Yeah, there's no. It's
1: prudence is. Cl- it's clear from the discussion that prudence is actually kind of closer to a grammar. We can imagine, but beneficence <laughs> and gratitude, fortitude, a lot of these other things um, are, are, are more loose, vague, and indeterminate. And so, he, so um, basically, he's saying the looser it is, uh, the more. You kind of you kind of have to go on your other passions because you don't your your sense of duty just is not telling you clearly what to do,
0: kind of thing. I, I love this part where he right in this section where he talks about uh, two things. You know, one is what what you'd call the slippery slope, and the second is the um, the stuff he'd been talking about with self deception. And it's what an exa- example he uses to show you why justice has to be. Like grammar, it had us to be black and white because of the dangers of the slippery slope and how you could deceive yourself. So it really rem- – I'm just going to read this passage. I just love mm-hmm. it. He says, though the end of the rules of justice be to hinder us from hurting our neighbor, it may frequently be a crime to violate them, though we could pretend with some pretext of reason that this particular violation could do no hurt. A man often becomes a villain the moment he begins, even in his own heart, to, ch- to chicane in this manner – The chicane being the verb that we've now lost. We have chicanery, but the verb to chicane. He says, the moment he thinks of departing from the most staunch and positive adherence to what those inviolable precepts prescribe to him, he is no longer to be trusted. And no man can say what degree of guilt he may not arrive at. The thief imagines he does no evil when he steals from the rich, what he supposes they may easily want, and what possibly they may never even know has been stolen from them. The adulterer imagines he does no evil when he corrupts the wife of his friend, provided he covers his intrigue from the suspicion of the husband and does not disturb the peace of the family. When once we begin to give way to such refinements, there is no enormity so gross of which we may not be capable. So his grammatical-like critique of of injustice, that it's there's no gray area, is is partly – a, a moral absolute but it's partly because he's, i think he's saying here that if we were to say well you know it's sometimes not clear whether it's okay to steal because if the guy's rich doesn't really want it it's not just that you'll do that it's not just that you might uh be an adulterer yeah. if your husband doesn't know it's okay he he's really saying that once you start there that's just the beginning mm-hmm. the incentive effects of that delusion are yeah. going to be extremely destructive if you don't you know, it's one thing to
1: make grammatical mistakes from time to time with people who are learning grammar, but if people are not concerned with their grammar and feel no, like, you know, impulse to actually correct it and improve it, even when it's quite bad, that kind of person probably is going to write really horrible, <laughs> you know, in the other sense, in the yeah, aesthetic sense. Absolutely. Even apart from the bad grammar. Um,
0: well, are we are we done with, chap- there's one with part other three?
1: There's one other point in here. Um, he says that, Um, almost the only cause of gross perversions of um, the proper sense of duty uh, or virtue um, are false notions of religion. Okay, those are almost the only cause which can occasion any very gross perversion of our natural sentiments. Um, This kind of relates to something that's coming up. You know, he's got this underlying theory that Big perversions of of proper sentiment um, don 't really persist and only happen in particular things and all this prompts me to raise the issue about political religion. he says false religion well, what about political religion? What about the political culture when when a society is sort of more politicized more infused with uh, public and maybe has a kind of politics which um, invites everyone to think themselves much more part of the government and part of a political endeavor, mission, purpose, and so on, which I think is very much what we have more in the democratic age. Um, So all this raises this big question for me, which I've I've hit on a couple of times about, um, sure, I think Adam Smith is getting at certain mechanisms that do tend to promote good morals and good culture. There are certain invisible hand mechanisms. In his book, he very much conveys the conviction that they kind of get the upper hand or have the upper hand overall. But I am a lot less confident about that in our world today, at least when it comes to a lot of these more political aspects of culture and morals, um. Uh,
0: than then the book suggests. You mean than then the book says explicitly? Um, is that what you meant?
1: Yeah, yeah uh, or or suggests by implication. I mean, he's optimistic about...
0: Incredibly optimistic.
1: ...the course of culture and morals, I would say.
0: Oh, I see what you're saying. And but, and but, so. but
1: the setting today <laughs> is so different. I mean, he says the only thing that can corrupt this is false notions of religion. Well, what happens when you have a political religion that pretty much encompasses you know, so much of the society so that the whole society, in a sense, is a sect or maybe th- this version of the faction of the sect versus that f- faction of a sect. So in this sense of an encompassing political religion, maybe then they can be grossly perverted on a very broad, broad scale forever <laughs> or for well, a long
0: time. I'd love to devote to a separate podcast down the road to this idea... Of what we lose when we choose to act collectively, it, it's so interesting because critics of um, free marketers will say that you know we're just a bunch of green eye shade, money loving, heartless folks who care about efficiency. And, and of course, that was not Smith's view. It is not my view. I, don't, I know it's not your view, Dan. Um, in that view, excuse me, in the in the in the anti-market view, uh, commerce corrupts. Uh, our, our pursuit of money corrupts. Our commercial interactions corrupt. Our heartlessness leaves people in the dust, et cetera, et cetera. And I think they ignore the flip side. But first, I, you know, obviously, I think that's a straw man and a, and a parody of what voluntary interactions actually are about. I think they're very much about virtue and not about cruelty and heartlessness. But certainly those who are critical of decentralized market-based voluntary interactions ignore the possibility often of the corrupting effects of government on virtue, of collective action on virtue, uh, relationships between parents and children because of no. uh, so security, uh, failing to care about the poor because you don't have to because the government, they'll take care of it, um, All kinds of areas, I think, and that's, I'd love to to continue on that, but I think um, if I understand your point, you're saying that while Smith is an optimist, you're much less optimistic about the virtuousness of daily life. I can't say it's been going well from my (laughs) point of view, and in addition to what you're saying. I, I disagree with you, by the way, in the sense that I don't believe that the we got to get into this a little bit to make sure people understand what we're talking about. Because Dan and I did a podcast before this book club on this idea. I think we did, or I think we did on, on the romance of mm-hmm. of collective solutions. Yeah. And on groupthink, on which groupthink. is related. Gonna, because right, it is. So those but, who are interested in getting the back story for this little piece we're going into can can go through the archives and find those. But what I find – I'm going to defend Smith as an optimist even in today's age. Okay. It, but, seems, it seems to me – when, when you made your remark about the corruption of a false religion being a destroyer of virtue, which and using a belief in say the political process as a false religion, first thought I had is of the people who who go to to government to bail them out of bad decisions they made, be it you know the execs at a, at a at a i g or the homeowners who bought a third house with no money down, and now they don 't want to pay the consequences for their bad decisions and I think that corrupts virtue, I think the the moral hazard issue is is real in that it reduces future prosperity but more than that much more than that to me the real danger of government as uh, bailer out government as parent is that it corrupts our humanity it cha- it destroys our incentives to act with prudence it destroys our incentives to act uh, carefully and 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 not recklessly and it distorts our incentives to help our fellow. Rather, it, chooses, it encourages us to lobby for and to use government, which is a zero-sum game, rather than to produce wealth, which is a non-zero-sum game. So for me, uh, I very much agree with your concern that, that the, the idea that Washington is the benevolent bestower of goodies is extremely corrupting to our virtue. My optimism comes from the fact that most people know that's a bad game. We, there are people who succumb to it, just like Smith would say. There are people who ignore the man within the breast, become thieves, adulterers, et cetera. But in our the way we raise our children and in the way we interact with our spouses and the way we interact with our friends, most of us don't count on government and don't counsel our friends and, and children to count on government as a source of benevolence and, and goodness. True, it's in our culture to look to government to see political leaders as as saviors of sort, magicians, as Don Boudreau, our colleague, will often invoke their wizard-like faith we have in some kind of wizard-like ability of them to to save us from this mishap or another. But I think deep down, and not just deep down, in our daily lives most of the time, they just don't have enough money or wisdom to pull it off. So true, at times we turn that way, but I don't see it corrupting our our most of our lives. I think we kind of ignore it. Most
1: of us. I think that was very well put and uh, has a lot of truth. Um, and you're making a kind of distinction about, you know, does big government lead us to not pay our loans? And you're saying not really. And I think that's a great point. And that's a good reason for this continued optimism. And in private to private action, I do think all these invisible hand mechanisms do generally work pretty well. Let me try to give a little yeah, go ahead. Um, back. Hmm. Look. Um, The average person is not enforcing drug prohibition and putting his neighbor in prison. Um, And the average person perhaps doesn't think all that much about, say, that issue. And that's just one of many, many issues I could raise. Immigration. Yeah, I mean, also all these economic regulations, occupational licensing, OSHA, minimum wage. I mean, all these things are coercive, an initiation of coercion by the government. They're pointing a gun at people who are perfectly innocent. Um, And... It's widespread okay, as well as taxation for all the social goodies right yeah. and you 're right that people in some sense just lead their private lives go, they lead their private lives and don 't worry so much about that now, however, they do have opinions about it, they do participate in it it does make them um, it does They do take interests in politics and actually develop affections and loyalties and everything else, which are often misguided, often based on very broad theories, which are wrong and foolish. Or at
0: least not supported by any real evidence. Yeah, <laughs> and actually
1: do then go against a lot of these virtues. You know, if Walmart's going to be demonized, well, Walmart's a guy engaging in voluntary things, being industrious, serving, you know. I mean, it is a kind of perversion of some of those morals. But look, when... Not only the average person, your neighbor, but then also the cultural institutions. We haven't mentioned that the government, you know, largely runs K through 12. About 70% of college professors work for the government, including us. Um, The government plays a huge role in the culture. Think of the whole set of cultural institutions also being heavily influenced by government. Now, in this world where opinion about policy, okay, can be very off base, which it can be, Smith, I think, didn't live in that world, first of all. For sure. His world was a different world. Okay, where people from the very bottom are being invited to kind of th- revere government, th- identify with government, you know, very much of a democratic age thing where the voter is above the president, as it were, that was a concept which the you know England did not have at all. <laughs> that the guy was above the king. Or yeah. He knew he was below yeah. the king, yeah. right? And he did not. I don't think. I think there was probably some sense of loyalty and all that, but did not feel all that attached to what the government was doing, and did not, you know. Um, so it's very different today. Now in this world where there's very broad notions about how things work, how things should work, uh, are commonly believed, taken for granted, and are wrong. There is a lot more of a role for the challenger, in my view. There's a lot more of a role for the Ludwig von Mises, okay, for the Thomas Zahs, to some extent, even the Milton Friedman, who was shocking and challenging, and in a sense, arrogant when he first hit the scene. Um, And that is missing from this book. Smith very much frowns on the guy who makes waves. You know, he doesn't at all celebrate the sort of cultural hero who challenges a a a dominant foolishness, who challenges yeah. some kind of groupthink.
0: He's big on order. He's big yes, on Yes, he's the very harmony. confident.
1: He's very confident about a amelioristic bargaining yeah. approach yeah, evolution
0: uh, of various kinds yeah. uh, implicitly.
1: So I, so I do think there are real issues here. Uh, at least uh, at least as because re- Implicitly, I think the book is saying not only do people tend to learn to pay their bills, but they do tend to get their opinions right about things. He's also, I think, got a kind of a optimistic view of culture.
0: I agree. He does, and you're saying he might be disappointed with how it's turned out. Right. I'm not sure. Uh, I think it's easy to be um, – it's a half full, half empty thing. It's yes. easy to look around the world today and say it's miserable and I – it's also easy for me to look around and say it's you know for all the things that are going on. Uh, the taxation is a great example. You know, as government's much bigger than it was ten years ago, twenty-five years ago, fifty years ago, hundred years ago, and yet so far, it's kind of a rock in the stream. We, as Smith said, we kind of swirl around it. We do the we kind of do our own thing. Despite that, it slows it down. It pushes it around in various ways, but the current keeps going. So I feel a that's little my bit, optimism. Yeah, I feel a little bit more
1: um, uh, unhappy about the situation. I, I, I think I look uh, – I want the culture to get things right. I want the culture to be harmonious. I want me and my neighbors and my family to be able to talk about the world in a way that makes sense and makes progress – um, and I want people to, you know, admire and understand, uh, you know, the good and the bad in politics and government and leadership. And that's not particularly what's happening, in my view. But we've
0: well, we got to keep writing. Thinking yeah, yeah sure. Yeah, 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 sure. Well, yeah.
1: By the way, all this leads very directly, I would say, into part four. Okay? Wow. So should we go there? Sure. Because let me, again, let me just say a little bit about the forest, and then perhaps we'll get into some of the trees. Okay, so what Part Four is about is the effect of utility upon the sentiment of approbation.
0: And what does he mean? He doesn't mean utility. It's when economists social use,
1: utility, some kind of social usefulness,
0: yeah, oh, outcomes, yes. real, real things happening That's that are right. good,
1: beneficial, yeah. results. Um, and he's taking issue again with the idea that um, that moral approval or approbation is 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 based directly on, on utility. Again, his... He's disagreeing. He's disagreeing with that. He's, uh, his organon is that... Which means his worldview or organizing framework from yes, last podcast for those of that's you right. who missed it. His principle of inquiry is that approbation or moral judgment is always enshrouded in some kind of spectatorial sympathy. That spectatorial sympathy is almost an aesthetic reaction uh, to the beauty of the conduct, and so it is based on a notion of propriety in the action. Okay? So, if you will, approbation is always enshrouded in a notion of propriety, a sense of propriety. Now, that propriety, I think Smith is saying, tends to be shaped or to conform to utility, Okay, and that's by virtue, really, ultimately, of God setting up and our the
0: incentives mor- that are in place. And, yes,
1: yeah. the whole system that He set things up, such that we will tend to develop notions of propriety that do serve utility, but it's not dr- not perfect, right? The journey from ut- from utility to approbation necessarily makes a stopover at propriety, right? So that's what He's saying, and He's got uh, three illustrations of this in the chapter. The first is the one about when the ambitious person pursues wealth and so on, it's actually more a sense of beauty and propriety in all of the means of happiness.
0: Bizarre view, but has real yeah. truth to it. It's, yeah, let me just run go through ahead. these and we'll yeah, come ahead. back
1: to them. So, and, and and so, he. this winds up, this is the Invisible Hand passage, where it winds up that um, at the end of his life, this guy who's pursued all of this wealth Finds that he hasn't actually derived that much happiness directly from them, and then now he's got all these large fortunes which become Operos machines, right? What is is Operos? or Operos. I I think it's like big, cumbersome, hard Uh, to handle, wish you didn't even have to bother with it kind of machine. Like, you know, dealing with all the stuff in your life. Having a Ferrari. Yeah. The
0: maintenance part is is a bummer. It's a beautiful
1: car. And yet, This notion of propriety which drove the guy is actually good for utility because it it, it led him to produce, to be industrious, and to uh, generate things that sustain mankind uh, and and a larger number of people. That's one illustration. Another illustration is that prudence and self-command are things we often do, not because we're actually sensible to the long-term utility of taking care of ourselves, right? Today, if I go out and, and, and eat right or, you know, refrain from not having a piece of chocolate cake, it's not that I'm so sensible to the fact that next week I'm going to be thinner and I'm directly doing it because of that utility, but it's a sense of propriety that I've developed in a habit of prudence or self-command. Uh, and finally, he talks about <clears throat> how... Um, Discussions of public policy and the great machine of the economy again inspires a sense of beauty in thinking about the whole social system or the whole economic system. And this beauty then gives us notions of propriety um, in thinking about public policy, the great machine. Um, And again, the person who is then inspired with public spirit does it more from a notion of the beauty. Grandeur or grandeur of the system, then that he's actually benevolent, right? Then that you know he actually directly cares about the utility, which is the source of that beauty.
0: Yeah, and that's a big problem. (laughs) So it's always so.
1: His point is that it's always propriety, which is based actually on spectatorial sympathy or nestled within it. Yeah. Um, That is always in between approbation and utility. But he's also got this affirmation that utility tends to conform with propriety that's the invisible hand sense in smith and again to go back to what we were just talking about my concern is that when the government runs K through 12 and everything else utility maybe doesn't that well conform to our notions of yeah. propriety
0: well i think the a, a phrase we haven't used when we're talking about invisible hand i think the other phrase we ought to mention is feedback loops it's a modern phrase but i think what smiths talking about there are these feedback loops that Bounces back and forth between outcomes and and motives that make them align to be somewhat harmonious. That yeah. when we we want a good thing, we cause a good thing. Right. If it doesn't, we feel guilty. Da da da. And and you're suggesting that in, in collective action, maybe those feedback loops don't work so well, and yeah. so the outcomes are not so not so good. Again, I just want to emphasize: utility here does not mean the economist's sense of the word utility, which is it's related to it, obviously, but it's not like a utility. Function where, where it's a sort of proxy in economics for happiness or satisfaction. He, he is talking about things that produce those things. Yeah. He's talking about things, when he uses the word utility, he's talking about prag- pragmatic, useful outcomes. Yeah, and
1: it's a social utility that he's talking He's talking about social utility, some kind of aggregate utility.
0: Well, not in what sense?
1: Well, in these considerations... Well, I guess it's uh, it depends on the situation. It depends on the application. But aggregate to the people, effective involved in the judgment,
0: you know, the matters being judged. But your point about propriety versus utility is that is that you're motivated by what seems like the right thing to do, not whether it might actually turn out to be a good outcome. Right. That's the distinction.
1: Yes, at least that's the, f- propriety is the first impulse. Right. A- and when we go back and think about utility, that again is always kind of based on a beauty in the utility, okay? So it's not the raw utility directly ever that, g- that uh, generates a moral judgment.
0: So that's, are, are you, do you have more to say about chapter one? Um, about chapter four. Part, uh, part four? part four, chapter one.
1: Um, This is basically all of part four that I'm going over. Uh, The only other thing I want to say, let me just get this in so that we can then – so when he's talking about people thinking about the great system and public policy, um, he speaks of people developing an exalted notion of propriety. He speaks of exalted propriety, Um, and I just want to go over a little bit this logic that each notion of propriety – Um, And by the way, that would be pertaining to certain virtue. Um, Each notion of propriety, as it were, corresponds to a referent community. Okay, so you've got sort of, if you will, community sub-I, and within community sub-I, propriety sub-I is what is normal. For that community. Yes, respectable, middle, above propriety sub-I would be praiseworthy within community sub-I. Below Propriety Sub-I would be blameworthy in Community Sub-I, but Smith clearly sets out here or introduces here or identifies here that thinking about this, we then sometimes move up to an exalted Propriety, okay? A a more select community, okay, a higher, richer, wiser in our mind who have higher standards, Community Sub-J. And in Community Sub-J, There's the notion of propriety, propriety sub J is higher than propriety sub I. And now what was praiseworthy for community I is maybe only average for Community J. So this notion of exalted propriety, I think, you know, very much speaks of that whole dialectic and unending process and refinement and ultimately a kind of notion of the, of, of a select, the wise and virtuous man
0: that he speaks of in part six with who goes after perfection and so on. And, and in part six, which maybe we'll get to sometime, I'm <laughs> optimistic, maybe not today, we'll see. But in part six, uh, he definitely talks about that evolutionary nature within a, within an individual that over time – so you have community, I and J, who may differ in their level of propriety. And, and he – he as an exemplar, he mentions the individual who over time develops more self-command, more prudence, right. more propriety. Exactly,
1: exactly. It's exactly that I to J sense there.
0: You're going to be a different person in 20 years. You're going to refine yourself. You're going to be more in control, et cetera.
1: So we've got – go ahead, Russ. Do you want to go into the invisible hand? Well, yeah, I
0: wanted to say first for those of you who uh, are not reading the book or just listening, uh, the first part of chapter one of part four is really a remarkable indictment of empty materialism. And it would come as a surprise, I think, to the readers who see Smith as this free market right winger, this bizarre parody of Smith – here, Smith, in the first part of the chapter, and I won't read it, but it is highly entertaining, where he mocks and talks about the emptiness of the gadgets of his day. It would be the equivalent for us of your iPhone or your your PDA, your BlackBerry, uh, or some fancy, uh, expensive. Watch. I think that's a better example, actually. Well, for him, in his day, for certainly, but he's talking, he talks no, about watches. I mean, an iPod's a pretty useful thing, isn't it? Well, it, <laughs> it depends. I don't have
1: one, so I don't know. Uh, really yes. Need.
0: Well, I, to me, some of these are just, are frivolous. And a lot of people would say that a, that a fancy cell phone is frivolous. Well, the fanciness, maybe. Right. Be. Yeah, it's the fanciness. Um... I I say iPod I I meant to say iPhone maybe a a fancier version of something that that does something in a in an elegant and impressive way he talks about how men and it is particularly men like toys uh, and again in 1759 you think well what could they be carrying around that would impress their neighbors and he has these bizarre offbeat examples um Tweezer cases and, and other mm-hmm. little weird things. And he talks about their pockets being stuffed with these things, <laughs> and which is ironic again because in in our world, we've got the same problem. I've got my cell phone, my iPod, my GPS, my um, – you name it, and I've got to charge them all and it's a, uh, keep their batteries going. So he indicts this – not indicts, is a little strong, but he's very clear that th- these are not going to make you happy. And he really gets on a – uh, a hobby horse of, of, of wagging his finger and saying, you know, stay away from these because they're, they're really a mistake. And, that in, and then he goes on to say that materialism generally, it's not just these little gadgets and things. He says, you know, you think you're going to be happy when you acquire all this stuff. And what I wrote in, in the margin of one of them, just, I'll read the short, a short quote here. He says, power and riches appear then to be what they are. Enormous and operose machines drive to produce a few trifling conveniencies to the body, consisting of springs, the most nice and delicate, which must be kept in order with the most anxious attention, and which in spite of all our care are ready every mo- every moment to burst into pieces and to crush in their ruins their unfortunate possessor. So you're, you're sort of entangled in this, yeah. it's almost a Charlie Chaplin modern times image of an indictment of mm-hmm. sort of... Uh, financial success you know, you're, you're tangled up in this, this spring-like gadget this uh, complex operos, whatever that means, machine that not only is that a pain in the neck but it's going to hurt you. It's going to, not only do you yeah. have to deal with it and keep the swimming pool filter exactly. cleaned, That's all these example. things are all just too much trouble. They don't really lead to happiness. So it's very, the uh, to Keep up the yard. Yeah, exactly. I wrote in the, in the margin, nobody on their deathbed wished they spent more time at the office. You know, this is Smith saying, you know, this is, this is fool's gold, this, this material excess. Uh, and again, for those who think that, you know, Smith is this great champion of greed or, or, or material well being to the expense of other things, clearly here, he is is an, a huge indictor of it, but for me the the coolest part of of this section, which is which I actually I loved, and I love the the indictment as well because I I'm prone to this gadget love too. You know, I got my Kindle, I've got my camera, I've got my I've got too many gadgets which produce sometimes. Got a recording
1: well, studio. I got my
0: recording toys, yeah. So, but what he says here, which is unbelievable, and it it um, uh, is really again an invisible hand sort of argument. He says. And in a minute, he's going to actually uh, use the term uh, coming up. But he he says, the pleasures of wealth and greatness, when considered in this complex view, strike the imagination as something grand and beautiful and noble, of which the attainment is well worth all the toil and anxiety which we are so apt to bestow upon it. So he's saying, you know, we think it's going to make us happy. Doesn't it's a, he says it's an illusion? But there's a sort of beauty in it. There's a beauty in it, and it's that's just sort of the sense of propriety. And we're kind of we're seduced by that, as in the in, in the small by the gadget, and we're seduced by it in the grand by the, the you know the palatial residence, the, yep. the, the, the prestige of being wealthy. But then he says, this is what's so remarkable. He says, and it is well that nature imposes upon us exactly. in this manner. It's, he says it's good that we have these these bad, these inaccurate views. They're not bad. They're good. That we take false gold as gold. He says, it is this deception, this is just a beautiful passage I have to read. He says, it is this deception which arouses and keeps in continual motion the industry of mankind. It is this which first prompted them to cultivate the ground, to build houses, to found cities and commonwealths, and to invent and improve all the sciences and arts which ennoble and embellish human life, which have entirely changed the whole face of the globe have turned the rude forests of nature into agreeable and fertile plains and made the trackless and barren ocean a new fund of subsistence and the great high road of communication to the different nations of the earth. The earth, by these labors of mankind, has been obliged to redouble her natural fertility and and to maintain a greater multitude of inhabitants. That's very important. And then, I'm going to skip down on on the same page. He then says... And he starts talking about ambition. He says, you know, you you think you're gonna build this huge agricultural enterprise because you're cause you're and he uses that, you know, the the eye is is bigger than the stomach. He uses right. the belly, saying, you know, you think you're gonna, gonna consume all this output, mm-hmm. Li- maybe literally even is is the implication, or at least figuratively that you're gonna sell it and you're gonna get all this stuff from it. And then he says this is this is the remarkable uh mention of the invisible hand in the context of it. He says, talking about the rich who've got this ambition to, to material greatness. It says, They consume little more than the poor, and in spite of their natural selfishness and rapacity, though they mean only their own conveniency, though the sole end which they propose from the labors of all the thousands whom they employ be the gratification of their own vain and insatiable desires, they divide with the poor the produce of all their improvements. They are led by an invisible hand, to make nearly the same distribution of the necessaries of life which would have been made had the earth been divided into equal portions among all its inhabitants, and thus, without intending it, without knowing it, advance the interest of the society and afford means to the multiplication of the species. When providence divided the earth among a few lordly masters, it neither forgot nor abandoned those who seemed to have been left out in the partition." These last, too, enjoy their share of all that it produces. In what constitutes the real happiness of human life, they are in no respect inferior to those who would seem so much above them. In ease of body and peace of mind, all the different ranks of life are nearly upon a level. And the beggar who suns himself by the side of the highway possesses that security which kings are fighting for. So this remarkable idea... Very different than, than I think the way we modernly think about the profit motive. And the profit motive in a modern economics, we say, well, you know, it induces – if there's competition, it induces people to serve the customer, et cetera. And, th- and I, I want to say as an introduction, uh, as a, a side note, he's really – this is a beautiful um, praise of entrepreneurship, right? Of the human desire to create and transform. It's really a, a gorgeous passage. And what he's, what, he, what he's saying is that that ambition – which which we often say leads people to serve the customer here it creates jobs it creates employment and well-being financial and economic well-being for people who didn't get a good they didn't get the farm they didn't get the estate they're they're just workers but through this invisible hand of ambition mm-hmm. this rich tiny minority is sharing that produce. Mm-hmm. And it, what's interesting is that in our day... As
1: consumers, too. As
0: consumers, then. And in our day, that material well, widespread material well-being is such a transformation of the world in the last 250 years. It really was only starting in Smith's time. The fact that he viewed the world that optimistically mm-hmm. then, when there were serfs, literally, on the face of the earth, is is really just, it's just extraordinary. It's just an amazing, mm-hmm. amazing passage. You know... Um, and it's again. It's the first mention if I'm if I'm right of the invisible hand, right? It's the only one. It's the only one. That's it, huh?
1: Yeah. There's only three in all of Smith's works. Three occurrences of the phrase.
0: And this is the only one in this book. Yes. And the other two are in. No,
1: one's in Wealth, yeah. and one's in the History of Astronomy essay. Cool. Um, yeah, I don't know if we want to get into the passage. I I agree with what you just said, and I like the general flavor of what Smith's saying, I do think there are a number of things about it that um, are uh, not so great. Go ahead. I think he, I mean, he kind of exaggerates the point to such an extent, first of all, with, in the the end, the beggar who (laughs) suns himself by the side of the road, possesses the security which kings are fighting for, you know, again. I mean, let's talk to the beggars about that. Yeah, no, that's fair enough. and, And so on, but but... This The specific of the Invisible Hand passage, it's a comparative claim, okay, about a, a supposed fact and a counterfactual. Okay, what is the supposed fact? It's that, quote, providence divided the earth among a few lordly masters. Okay, does Smith believe that? Does he expect us to believe that? I don't know. Maybe more importantly, the counterfactual to which that other is being compared, namely, quote, had the earth been divided into equal portions among all its inhabitants. Now, does that counterfactual happen back at the beginning of God's creation? I imagine so.
0: Well, I thought it was a statement about, you know, in That's, his day, wealth was, land was was the major source of wealth, right? So, there's been an enormous amount of agitation in the last 250 years to get the distribution of land or the distribution of wealth to be more egalitarian. A lot of people All indict right, capitalism if, because the initial conditions are unfair. Some people start out with a lot and some don't. And that's it's, how I always and originally read the passage. And that would make
1: sense in the sense that – He's an apologist. In he's the saying the sense it's okay. That, yeah, and in the sense that – think of there being such agitation, although I'm not sure there was that early for that um, –
0: there was in France okay. very soon in this, t- in this period, right?
1: I, I would imagine, I, if you say so, I'm not okay. sure.
0: Russia. Um, but anyway, if later. there is
1: that, I mean, then, then the counterfactual he's talking about is if it was equally divided, had the earth been divided into equal portions among its inhabitants in,
0: in, lately, like I think last he generation. A, I think he means now. I think he's talking like about...
1: Le- like 20 years ago. He's talking about, about a Marxist... Okay, in that case, and- if that's what he means, which I don't think really is that well supported by the text but if that's what he means what he says is even more
0: preposterous (laughs) well I'm going to challenge that I'm going to put that behavioral uh, economist hat on Smith that we've put on him a few times in the last few podcasts he's saying money doesn't create happiness okay look uh let me jump
1: in again. Yeah. All right. You know, and so he's saying, okay, go back to the beginning of it. They are led by an invisible hand to make nearly the same distributions of the necessaries of life. Now, he can, we can salvage all this by saying the necessaries of life Food, is clothing, just, shelter, it's just it's enough to keep you alive. It's a minimal standard. To, yeah. to make you a beggar lying by the side <laughs> of the highway. Sunning yourself, though, very Sunning, serenely. true. <laughs> Sunning, that, that helps. That's right. Um, so, I mean, but, I mean, overall, I think the whole thing is terribly muddled. In these well, ways, again,
0: I would say, you know, on that last point about the the king, you know, it's this classical idea, it's an old idea, it's that, you know, uneasy lies the head that wears the crown. And he talks a lot in, in the coming pages about assassinations of kings and Caesar getting killed because he overreaches and, you know, he's saying, yeah. uh, you know, they're, they're not so happy. He's, he's really taking a, a deep spiritual view of I, what… The source yeah, of happiness.
1: I agree. I just think that the overstatement seems so extreme that I'm not sure he's doing his good point of service <laughs> okay, with, fair enough. with it all.
0: I, I hear you. It's not conv- – for somebody who's got m- more than the, the median necessities of life, be that Smith or Russ, yeah. to, to then uh, say that that everybody's equally well off is a bit uh, – it's maybe a bit absurd and, and it's maybe very bad uh, marketing <laughs> yeah. um, but I found it to be a fascinating passage. I mean, even if
1: you go back to the idea of each person wanting to find that propriety at sub by and then go up to J and improve themselves and have, you know, a meaningful, progressive life, you know. And it's always in that next step, right, that life is really enjoyed and experienced. Well, if the beggar doesn't get to do much development, if the poor person, you know, I mean, material means do matter to that. I mean, that's not I, I totally just, agree. just a sort of a crummy slogan of the left or something. It's true. It's true. I don't agree with you the policies longer, they you might propose longer, about yeah. it. But, I mean, so, you know, there's there's a lot to be said for money doesn't buy happiness. But it, that point can be overdone.
0: I totally agree. I'm reading it through modern my modern eyes, thinking of Sergey Brin and Larry Page who create Google, become billionaires, and uh, – they have a nicer car than i do uh, uh, they 're they're funding the uh, the Tesla the one hundred plus mile an hour electric car That's it 's a gorgeous vehicle and they go to nicer vacations than I do and nicer vacations and and have nicer cars and fancier houses if they want than all of their employees, but their employees have really a fascinating and interesting life working there. And those of us who get to put the consumer side into it that Smith doesn't talk about in his example, uh, we've benefited tremendously. So when people complain that they've got a disproportionate share of the pie and uh, that the world would be a better place if they were forced to share it with the rest of the world, I like that they created that. I, to me, their well-being is
1: mm-hmm.
0: re- redounds to me, and that's what I think Smith is partly saying. He may go too far there. I'll accept that. Let's move on. Okay, we're going to tackle part four, part five. Are we done with part four? Um, Let me just. To my mind. Let me look. Um, Visible hand. Um, Yeah. Well, um, I got to challenge you on one thing before we go to part five. Sure. Um, Because I know you've you've confessed that that Smith is your. Is the uh, Moses the 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 I'll call him your pa- the patron saint maybe okay. so the patron saint of 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 a classical liberal view. In in the, in chapter one of part four, he talks about the perfection of police, the extension of trade and manufactures are noble and magnificent objects. He praises some of the public work side of government, and it seems like he's um. He says, uh, the same principle, the same love of system, the same regard to the beauty of order of art and contrivance frequently serves to recommend those institutions which tend to promote the public welfare. And he talks about all this – he talks about the public roads, all this government stuff. He seems to be positive. Do you want to give thoughts on that?
1: Yeah. First of all, the way he's speaking of that, I think he's talking about public policy generally, not specifically that it should be government works. I mean, I don't think he's, he's saying that um, when you observe and think about, you know, the government sector and its growth and expansion, you get filled with this sense of beauty and public spirit. I think he's just saying public policy, whatever good public policy is, but the effect public policy has on the whole society, the whole system. Okay, so it's got these, he's pulling back and taking this super wide angle view, that fourth source of moral approval that we were talking about at the very beginning the very wide force source of all the effects of an action. And he's saying that um, thinking about this, discussing this with people, exploring it yourself, does create an interest in how things work in the big picture, a more whole and hence less partial view of all the consequences of, say, public policy. And so I don't see any rub uh, uh, against liberalism here, classical liberalism. And in fact, I like this aspect in Smith. I think classical liberalism as a political a set of political positions and political outlook, you know, very much ought to have this semi-anthropomorphic view of the whole. Not, not that society is a, an organism, but that there is a kind of organism, if you will, that views the whole, not in its details, but in it only in an abstract way, but thinks about the whole, um, with whom we then sympathize. I mean, that's sort of our sympathizing with this imagined being whose hand is invisible. Okay. Um, uh, in fact, I think in, in libertarian circles, there's people have veered too much away from these sort of anthropomorphic notions, these kind of social aggregate
0: notions. Um, Hayek's critique of the word social alone, I think has caused some people to be suspicious of it as an adjective. Social is an adjective. I think he veers, social justice. And you know, he
1: was less that way earlier, Um, but he did veer that way more. The more he got into his critique of um, socialism, um, but it 's even more so in in Mises, at least after his book socialism uh he veers very much against and and, and rothbard these are this is kind of one of the main uh, camps if you will, within the Austrian economics movement um, and I think Smith tells us we should think in these kind of sort of social organism terms in the sense that we 're creating these or imagining these spectators these beings okay with a kind of social view and these beings have some very superior knowledge by assumption and of kind of benevolence now they don't have any power or if they have any power
0: they're withholding it yeah what's that they're withholding it they're constraining themselves
1: yeah or i mean if you want to turn this being with the invisible hand into the impartial spectator, then they have this moral power, this emanating moral power, our right, judgment, yeah. that affects us in our breast. Yeah. That would be their power. But anyway, this being does not sound anything like government. So it's a kind of, if you like, I don't know what the right, good word is, uh, you know, social organism, anthropomorphism, but it's, can we develop that without falling into a kind of statist social anthropomorphism that identifies the government or the state, you know, the group of people in the polity, including the citizens, as the, um, as the being with the government as its actual power, you know, its arm. Implementer, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think, that, I think that actually the Austrian movement has veered too much away from that including Kersner, I would say, in in a lot of his, and you know who else veers away from this in a lot of, in in a very anguished way, I think, is James Buchanan. He's got a great tension within him, I think, of actually going with the kind of social anthropomorphism view um, and using it, and then also totally bridling at it, and saying this is totally unscientific, and there's nothing but individual action and individual experience, and so on and so on, and you can't really socially aggregate, um, or only in some like very uh, way that's really not like in so much in the Smithian way. So that's what I think about when he talks about that. I think that I think the discussion of the grand affairs does inspire, um, you know, humanity and generosity. I think maybe he calls it that, I'm not sure public spirit. Um, and a sense of beauty, we have to develop as economists, public policy analysts, whatever, social scientists, notions of what is a
0: more beautiful social system. Um, we just have to be careful, though, as, uh, as Ed Leamer said in a recent podcast, we don't confuse our model with reality. You know, I think we have a tendency to create a beautiful model yeah. and assume that would create a beautiful social organism in it. That's a good. Uh, we'll, we'll be talking about the man of system shortly. It would be, I think, one of the dangers of that strategy. It's a, very, it's a very vague tapestry, okay. And
1: so, even to think of it as like some kind of rigorous model, I mean, I don't. Yeah. Uh, anyhow,
0: <laughs> okay. well, let's move on to let's move on to part five. Okay, which sure. Which I have almost nothing to say about. It. I found it to be okay. n- it's short and and it's. I have a brief
1: set of notes here. Um, it's about the influence of custom and fashion. Now, potentially, this could be a very, a very major f- topic, but I don't really think it turns into such a major topic in the book. First of all, what's the difference between custom and fashion? Think of it in terms of clothing. Custom is what everyone wears. Fashion, that which those wear who are of high rank or character. So fashion is kind of like the the elite, the the upper edge. Um, Style also gets discussed. Style is different schemes of clothing design that may come in or out of fashion or customs. So they're just different schemes. And he talks about how customs can get locked in. He's concerned, uh, maybe not as concerned as he should be, about whether the influence of custom and fashion can corrupt uh, the moral sentiments. And he says that, not, not, don't worry too much. As regards the moral sentiments, um, these are much more robust than just our sense of beauty, as in actually clothing design, say. Our moral sentiments are much more robust um, and not so sensitive to custom and fashion. He ta- discusses some variations in customs and fashions by uh, profession, by how old people are, by nations, by states of society. Yet he says, we readily feel that independent of custom, there is a propriety in the manners which custom has allotted in a specific example that he discusses. So in other words, he's saying, we can always step back and judge the... um Propriety that the custom is recommending, mm-hmm. so in a sense, we have another community right, and its sense of propriety that can judge of the, 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 the proprieties recommended by custom and fashion, and that 's part of this optimism that they 're not going to be misle- that misleading. He says he has a great condemnation of slavery see he's concerned he, he shows con- some concern i don 't think maybe enough, with whether you know society is going to completely pervert. Moral judgment uh go in the wrong direction uh be vicious and terrible, and he acknowledges that, for example, when he condemns slavery and he says that that is never just and societies that have that those are some particular usages that are gross violations they are something like that's extraordinary um, as 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 a way in which custom has gone mis gone wrong essentially um, but it's unjust. Um, and he says that on the whole, custom and fashion pervert only particular usages and never sort of the general fabric of the morality of a society. And he, and he makes one of his most notable evolutionary arguments here. He says that if custom and fashion did ever seriously pervert the general moral fabric, that society wouldn't continue or wouldn't prosper. So that's an evolutionary yeah, argument sure. about which cultures. Yeah, all, yeah. Um, and in this, also, I know a topic that you're interested in, Ross. He he condemns infanticide generally, but also says that it's sometimes in some societies accepted as kind of a custom, where it's not really frowned on. But he feels that it's that it's basically unjust, uh, regardless. Now, I'm I'm not interested in that actually, but
0: yeah. that was an example. Well, you brought it up. I brought yeah. it up in our off off the air yeah. conversation as an example of something where, you know, Smith really goes out on a limb here and he condemns infanticide. Now. I'm kind of mocking. I'm joking about it because infanticide hasn't been really in fashion f- uh, for a while, and the Spartans did it. And it, I think it bothers Smith that the Greeks, who I think he probably thought had some kind of moral system, th- that it was common. So he's it, it. It ties into your point earlier about what how what is pro- what is proper in one culture may not be proper in another. Yeah. I
1: don't know if you want to dwell on this. I do think that the condemnation of slavery, it just, it just jumps out and is so strong. Do you want to read yeah. it? or no, go ahead. Okay, he says, um, uh, There is not a Negro from the coast of Africa who does not, in this respect, possess a degree of magnanimity which the soul of his sordid master is too often scarce capable of conceiving. So he's saying that even in in backward societies, savage societies or whatever, the, sa- the so-called savages actually can feel magnanimity and so on. More Do you want to try ma- to find this? No, more than the master. Oh, yeah. I mean, he, he says, which the soul of, the, of his sordid master is too often scarce capable of conceiving. Fortune never exerted more cruelly her empire over more mankind than when she, she subjected those nations of heroes to the refuse of the jails of Europe to wretches who possess the virtues neither of the countries which they come from nor of those which they go to and whose levity brutality and baseness so justly exposes them to the contempt of the vanquished what he's saying is that it's the 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 slave traders are like the refuse of europe and they um their bu- brutality and baseness Exposes them to the contempt of those whom they
0: enslave. I mean, it's it's the impartial, the very partial, but some some partial spectators, those slaves, yes. are judging the, the the real inferiority of the master. Absolutely it's an incredible passage. You're right. I, I have to recommend the um, the essays on the econlive.org website by our colleague David Levy and and his co-author Sandra Pert. On Smith and other classical economists view of race, and how, contrary to some of their other British counterparts uh, smith and and Mill and others saw every person poor uh, of a different race didn 't matter, equally capable of leading their own lives and making their own judgments and there 's a dog that doesn 't bark in this book, which is you know th- I, I noted this. In part six, and you'll correct me maybe if I haven't finished the book, but well into part six, there is no mention of Smith, by Smith, of any of distinction in all of his observations about human nature. He's made these tremendous claims about propriety, morality, conscience, prudence. There's not a single class statement that those are different among the classes. He never says, of course, this is among me and my friends. Among the poor, you know, they're a bunch of. You That's know, right, vermin. He doesn't say that. He never says makes a distinction that well among the lower classes. And he's writing in England in 1759 through the end of the 18th century. In the different editions of this book, there is some discussion about savages, but despite that discussion, which you could take you could take as a racial discussion, it's not partic- I don't know if it, savage means racial in his world no. or just primitive. I think he means. I assume he meant primitive peoples, sure. which w- which would include a whole range of races. Other than that, a lack of civilization is what he 's talking about there, other than that, Smith is a remarkable egalitarian in his time with respect to class and race and, and that passage just really reinforces that yeah. and it 's really i think uh, you know david levy and sandra pert's essay was 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 an attack on was a defense of economics against the the, the charge name against the charge. It's the dismal science because it is such a lousy view of mankind and such a crummy view of life. And what they, what they show in that essay is it really was called the dismal science by Carlyle because it was the economists who stood up for the fundamental equality of human beings uh, with respect to each other, as you talked about in the first podcast, that, that human beings are equals, uh, that much of life takes place among equals. And although he does talk about the sovereign or the, the the king, and occasionally the the entrepreneur who's who's achieved great wealth, most of the action in this book is everybody else, and that includes the destitute, the poor, the the, the Irish. To take an example of of a, of a group that was mocked and and stereotyped for the, their moral lack of more virtue by other people, but Smith never does that. He never he has no racial, no almost no national stereotypes. And certainly no class stereotypes. And it's just, it's the dog that doesn't bark in the book for me. It's really it, remarkable. I think that the closest he comes
1: to that is this discussion of, of custom and fashion, where he does talk some about um, different walks of life, different professions, different levels of comfort, having different customs. But, 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 it's, but not it, it's, it's not
0: judgmental. It's not
1: judgmental. And the whole discussion of custom and fashion tends to, minimize or diminish, right, the effect of that in upsetting the moral fabric, the moral framework. So uh, where it does appear, it's sort of diminished. Um, and he certainly doesn't, you know, he, he wouldn't in any way disapprove or look down on that certain people, cer- certain classes, ages, what have you, professions, have different customs. He's, right. not, he's not like,
0: yeah. You know, I think what's remarkable is that when we find those kind of judgments, say, by uh, in the Levy and purd essay, by, by people that we tend to respect, people like Tennyson or, or Dickens, who were who, I, I hope I'm getting this right, who who defended slavery, who defended the oppression of Africans on the grounds that they weren't capable of fending for themselves, or of the Irish, because you know they have they they can't fend for themselves. It was Smith and Mill and others who said Spencer. No, And who? Spencer, who who stood up and said, "No, they're just like us. They're just enslaved. We we need to. They can they can make their own moral decisions, their own economic decisions. They're perfectly capable." So so uh, colleagues of of the British economists were were paternalists, really of the worst kind. They were condoning the oppression of people in the name of helping them. And um, I'm sorry, you say colleagues of the British economists? Yeah. People, yeah, I didn't mean colleagues. I meant uh, punk critics. No, I no. meant they were pa- uh, compatriots. They, they oh, were yeah. fellow uh, intellectuals, fellow okay. writers, fellow cultural critics. Yeah, but most of
1: the classical political economists, I think, were
0: on our side—the side, the side right. of egalitarian, of true right. equality. And uh, it was the it was the it was the writers and other philosophers Romance, who
1: were, Ruskin and Carlyle right, exactly the kind of anti political economy people Correct,
0: who were critical of the economists and political economy in particular because the economists believed that people were roughly created equal and could fend for themselves and here Smith's really I think also talking about oh, implicitly because it's the dog that doesn't bark a moral. Equality and ability—not just to make yeah. rational decisions in your own self-interest and pursue your own goals and dreams and desires, but to do it with with propriety and prudence, et cetera. So, you know, the worst people of that era would say, "Oh, the this group—they're they're not prudent, the poor, the Irish, whatever it was." But Smith never says that, and it's just—it's just extraordinary that in 1759 he wasn't prey to those to those views. And, you know, we're not apologizing for him. Well, it was, you know, in those days, but a lot of people in those days did do it, and Smith didn't. Yeah. Absolutely.
1: Anyway, I think that wraps up uh, Part 5, at least in my view, and Part 6 is of the character of Virtue.
0: I want to thank Dan Klein for being our guide here for the end of Parts 3 and Parts 4 and 5, and we'll move on to Part 6, and I hope some of 7 in our next uh